can patients with type 1 diabetes achieve insulin independence with islet cell transplantation? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Diabetes. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Luchas, and joining me from Seattle is Dr. Paul Robertson, who is President and Scientific Director of the Pacific Northwest Diabetes Research Institute. He's also Professor of Pharmacology and Medicine at the University of Washington. Today we're discussing the clinical relevance of pancreatic islet cell transplantation and what we can hope to achieve for our type 1 diabetic patients using this procedure. Welcome Dr. Robertson. Thank you. So who are the patients theoretically best served by this procedure? The patients that we consider for islet transplantation as well as for pancreas transplantation are those that are particularly bothered by hypoglycemia during their attempts to manage hyperglycemia. So there has to be a serious metabolic problem before they would be considered for the transplant procedure. What are the exact criteria? It varies from group to group. Our group likes to be sure that the patients have undergone intensive treatment with insulin by a person trained in diabetes treatment. It doesn't have to be a physician necessarily, but it has to be a nurse practitioner or a nurse or somebody who knows their way around the different insulin preparations and the pitfalls and management of hyperglycemia. So often we find that people who are referred for the transplant procedures really have not had that sort of exposure yet. They've had difficulties, but they've been managed by non-experts in terms of insulin treatment. So that's an important thing that insulin treatment just is not doing the job in terms of keeping the hemoglobin A1C to a reasonable level. And to be sure, there are patients that are just finding it impossible to maintain that level. If we discover that One of the problems in maintaining a reasonable hemoglobin A1C level is recurrent hypoglycemia. Then that adds a second layer of indication for the transplant. Does the presence of micro or macrovascular complications from diabetes affect your choice of patient? Well, it certainly does in terms of pancreas transplant. For example, if a person is going to get a kidney transplant for kidney failure, then it's a no-brainer to add a pancreas onto that because that patient is going to be immunosuppressed anyway. And oftentimes you can procure the pancreas from the same donor that gives the kidney for the purposes of kidney transplant. When it comes down to pancreas transplant alone, it's a little more controversial because there you have to make the decision to give in immunosuppressive drugs, give a single pancreas in the absence of kidney failure, and there it becomes a matter of does this patient really need a pancreas or is the progression of the secondary complication so severe that it warrants a pancreas transplant? And there's one area where it's a very simple decision is when people with diabetes develop a syndrome called autonomic insufficiency, a syndrome in which they can't maintain their blood pressure, they have gastroparesis, perhaps diabetic diarrhea, they're losing weight tremendously, they get cachectic, and it's really a terrible situation because of the inability to predict absorption of food, then they don't know how much insulin to give or when to give it. So they go from extremely high levels of glucose to very threateningly low levels of glucose. This particular group of patients has a life expectancy that's reduced such that a group of patients like that over five years have a 50% death rate. So with that kind of a scenario, it's again a no-brainer to refer them for either pancreas transplant or islet transplant. There are a lot of shades of gray in between, and that's where the controversy exists. Do you need to consider the age of the patient when you're making these decisions as well, or is that irrelevant? It's just a progression of the diabetes. 
The age is considered, but it's not rigid. There are children who've gotten islet transplants and done very well with them. This is more in the auto islet transplant part of things rather than the allo islet transplant. There are recipients of pancreases, pancreatic organs, I've seen up to about the age of 60 or 65. You know, it's really a matter of what kind of physical health the patient's in, how likely they are to comply with taking the immunosuppressive drugs, and how serious the diabetes is. And what's the youngest age of the children that you were talking about? The children for islet transplant, I think the youngest I've known personally is about 10 years old. A pancreas transplant, of course, wouldn't be considered in a child because typically the recipient of the pancreas transplant has had type 1 diabetes for over 20 years. And is the goal of islet cell transplantation complete insulin independence? My goal, and you'll get a discussion and an argument from other people, especially surgeons, my goal is to improve their quality of life. Whether or not they're totally insulin-free to me is irrelevant. And that's kind of an artificial goal. That's usually the goal the surgeons will address. We want to make them insulin-free. I think that's too ambitious. What you're trying to do is improve their quality of life so they don't have hypoglycemia. To me, it's almost, it's not irrelevant. That's not a fair word, but it's immaterial. They have to take a little bit of insulin at bedtime, long-acting insulin, to maintain a normal hemoglobin A1C. If you move them from a place where it's impossible to maintain a normal hemoglobin A1C and they're having recurrent hypoglycemia, to the better place of having a normal hemoglobin A1C without hypoglycemia, then to that kind of a patient, taking perhaps, let's say, 50% less insulin is not such a bad deal. And with the results of islet cell transplantation, how many working islet cells can you expect from a transplant on average? That's a sticky question because we know how many we put in, but there's really no way to determine how many survive the procedure. And we know that the islets we put in are sometimes damaged by the process of isolating the islets. My guess is that when we say we've transplanted X number, let's say we try to transplant 300,000 islets, wouldn't surprise me to discover that we're actually transplanting less than 100,000 surviving islets. Are there any other limitations of either pancreatic transplant or islet cell transplant that we haven't discussed? The caveats one has to make sure you understand, that the patient understands, recipient understands, is the problematic first year after receiving immunosuppressive drugs. These are rough drugs. They can cause all kinds of problems with infections, with side reactions. They themselves can be toxic to the beta cells you're transplanting, be it in a pancreas or via islets. People have to know that. It's very expensive. It's expensive procedure. The drugs are expensive annually thereafter. It's a balancing act between quality of life, how bad is the quality of life pre-transplant, where will we wind up post-transplant, quality of life really substituting insulin and hypoglycemia for now the side effects of the immunosuppressive drugs. So it's not a trivial decision. It's not a convenience-based decision. It's not a decision just so I don't have to take insulin anymore. It's a decision because it's a life-threatening disease. You might have a patient who's Secondary complications are just galloping away with serious eye disease, serious kidney disease, serious neuropathy. That's where the decision has to be made. For those of you just tuning in, welcome to a special segment, Focus on Diabetes on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Lushaz, and I'm speaking with Dr. Paul Robertson. We're discussing the clinical relevance of islet cell transplantation. Dr. Robertson, what is the exact cost or approximate cost for a patient if they're going to consider paying for a transplantation on their own? 
just been quoted some time ago that it's about $80,000 to transplanting pancreas, maybe a little bit more these days. I haven't seen cost figures recently. Islo transplantation has always been experimental so far, so it's really hard to figure out the costs on that, but it's probably about the same when you get done with it. After a transplant, how do you diagnose early rejection in an islet cell transplant? The best way to diagnose that is really not used. What should be happening is the patient should be determining a two-hour postprandial glucose level, I would say twice a week. They're used to glucose monitoring. It'll be a piece of cake for them to do that. And as soon as there's an indication that, let's say if they have excellent glucose control with their islet transplant, as soon as there's an indication that's getting away from them, they should be treated for rejection. That's really not done now. Right now, people are just being transplanted, and pretty much they're just followed, and when they get hyperglycemic again, they start taking insulin. With a pancreas transplant, it's a different situation. Typically, a pancreas is given with a kidney. Kidney rejection is used as a sentinel rejection for the pancreas, and that's done by measuring the creatinine level. So as soon as the creatinine starts creeping upwards, anti-rejection drugs are given immediately to protect the kidney. And hand-in-hand, then the pancreas gets protected also. That's really not, in my opinion, not the best way to do things. I think you could also measure two-hour postprandial levels in the years post-pancreas transplant because there are instances where a pancreas will be rejected, but a kidney will not. So using a creatinine to predict survival of a pancreas may not always be the smartest option. And since we have these simple measurements available, I really think we should start availing ourselves of them. In terms of islet cell transplantation, can you do it more than once on the one patient? Sure. I mean, routinely it is done more than once. So you get islets typically at two different settings a month apart. But you can retransplant if you wish. There are some questions about sensitivity. If you transplant too many islets from too many different donors, whether or not you're going to sensitize the patient to reject almost anything that needs to be transplanted, such as a kidney, later. In the pancreas transplant world, if there's a rejected pancreas, not infrequently patients will come back and ask for a second pancreas and a third pancreas, and that's been done quite frequently. Is there any research being done at the moment into immunosuppressive drugs that may not be toxic to the pancreatic cells, the islet cells? Well, I'm sure there is. I mean, the drug companies has gotten the message that if they can come up with a good immunosuppressive agent that won't harm beta cells, they'll have a terrific drug. There are none on the market, and there may be some in pharmaceutical houses that are being developed, and I suspect they are. What are the drugs that are used at the moment? Well, the drugs are the more conventional immunosuppressive drugs. They come by a variety of names. The groups of drugs are calcineurin inhibitors. There are other drugs that can decrease inflammation. Those are used to block the so-called cytokine storm after transplantation, particularly with islets. And there are other groups of drugs that just have different mechanisms of action than being immunosuppressors. But the list of drugs is so long, you wouldn't want me to read them off to you on that row for a radio station. Would you like to comment on the procedure of gastric bypass surgery being touted by some doctors as a potential cure for type 2 diabetes? Well, that's brand new and I think increasingly controversial area. To keep it really simple, I'll say that there's no question there's a place for bariatric surgery in the treatment of obesity. Obesity can be life-threatening. It can really obviously damage quality of life. So I think gastric bypass surgery designed for treatment of obesity makes perfectly good sense. Second statement is that there's no question that if people have type 2 diabetes and morbid obesity, 
that when they get the gastric bypass, the glucose level normalizes after the bypass. Now, that has led some surgeons to ask the question whether or not we couldn't use gastric bypass as a primary therapy for type 2 diabetes. And my opinion on that is that just is way premature and doesn't make any sense at all because we have perfectly good therapies in, in hand for type 2 diabetes, such as insulin and oral agents, lifestyle changes, weight loss, those kinds of things. So it's a logical fallacy to go from the premises that the amount of obesity bariatric surgery decreases glucose levels, therefore we should bariatric surgery to treat type 2 diabetes. This is too big a jump. Well, thanks, Dr. Paul Robertson, very much for being our guest today. We've been discussing what we can hope to achieve for our patients with pancreatic islet cell transplantation. I'm Dr. Mary Lushars. You've been listening to a special segment, Focus on Diabetes, on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at reachmd.com. Register with promo code RADIO and receive six months free streaming for your home or office. Thanks for listening.